Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. How did the preeminent theorist and philosopher, Michel Foucault, experience and observe the Iranian revolution? How did he find the revolution disruptive of a teleological notion of history? And how did the Iranian revolution impact and shape Foucault's thought? These are among the questions addressed by Behrouz Ghamari Tabrizi in his exciting new book, Foucault in Iran, Islamic Revolution After the Enlightenment, published by University of Minnesota Press in 2016. This book presents an intimate portrait of the events and conditions that led to the revolution, coupled with a fascinating account of Foucault's engagement with that moment. Historically rich and theoretically nuanced, Foucault in Iran advances a scathing critique of previous works on the subject that charged Foucault with having endorsed Islamist violence by supporting the revolution. This book offers a more complicated reading of Foucault's views on the revolution that disrupts binaries like secular Islamist, while also providing a riveting analysis on questions of time, history and revolution. Here now is my conversation with Behrouz Ghamari Tabrizi on Foucault in Iran. Hello, Behrouz, how are you doing? Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me for this conversation. No, I'm uh, such a pleasure to have you and uh, it was such a uh, pleasure and delight to read this book. So nicely written and uh, uh, it really brings us perspectives on this important subject that uh, not many of us know about. So really look forward to this conversation. Uh, Behrouz, we have a tradition on new books in Islamic studies that our first question is always biographical. Uh, uh-huh. Could you share a bit with our listeners how did you become a scholar of Iran and uh, and perhaps also how you came to write this particular book and got interested in this particular subject. Okay. Uh, I actually you know, participated in the Iranian revolution uh, uh, when, while it was happening in 1978 and 79. And, uh, and uh, in a sense, uh, I, before becoming a scholar of Iranian revolution, I was a participant in the Iranian revolution. And... Um, but uh, I didn't focus my scholarly work on the Iranian Revolution for quite a while. And, and uh, in my first works, I uh, focused more on uh, sort of Islamic uh, movements around the world and Islamic intellectual discourses on modernity. And I wanted to give myself some uh, distance and some time to eventually go back to the Iranian Revolution and, and study it. Uh, without the kind of sort of involvement that I had uh, personally with the revolution. And uh, as we know, you know, like uh, memory and participation sometimes can be, can facilitate a, a research and sometimes it can uh, be an obstacle to, to a good research. So I wanted to have that kind of distance and I went back to, to, the, to the study of the Iranian revolution uh, like 15 years or so after finishing my uh, doctorate in sociology. So. Uh, so, Berus, could you describe for us uh, the main argument that you tried to assemble in this book in relation to Foucault in Iran, and perhaps also what are the kinds of readings that currently exist on Foucault's engagement with the Iranian Revolution that you tried to contest? Could you give us a sense of the broader argument, and then in the following questions, we'll try, have the opportunity to uh, unpack some of the aspects of that argument. But could you give us a sense of the larger argument of the book? Sure. Uh, there are two things that I wanted to uh, put forward in this book. One uh, was uh, 
a, a new historiography of the Iranian revolution. And uh, it's uh, always said in the discipline of history that uh, history is written by the victors. And, uh, and curiously enough, the Iranian revolution, the history of Iranian revolution was rather uh, written by the losers of this revolution because most of the intellectuals who left Iran and became involved in scholarly work and academic work in, in the West, those are the ones who actually wrote the history of the revolution. And, uh, and the basic core argument in the dominant uh, conversations about Iranian uh, historiography has been uh, that uh, this was a revolution, an anti-colonial, anti-imperialist revolution uh, in which many different uh, uh, groups participated. And uh, But uh, after the revolution or around the time of revolution in February 1979, uh, the Islamists, Ayatollah Khomeini, the clerics, the mullahs, stole the, revolu the revolution. And uh, here I wanted to offer a corrective or a, rather uh, a revisionist history against that kind of dominant uh, discourse of uh, Iranian uh, revolution and to argue that this uh, revolution indeed was an Islamic revolution and, and uh, in so many different ways uh, it was Islamic. I, I can dis uh, define that uh, a little bit uh, later. Uh, but if there were any forces that tried to actually steal the revolution, where the uh, Iranian left and uh, factions in liberal nationalist movements who tried to sort of steer the revolution away from, from its uh, Islamist uh, leadership. Uh, and uh, that was on, on the Iranian revolution side, I wanted to sort of to, uh, to uh, write a new narrative or nar new historiography of the revolution. And also then Foucault's involvement in the revolution was always understood uh, uh, by uh, by many scholars in the West, and very famously in a book uh, that was written by Janet Afari and uh, Kevin Anderson uh, on the same topic, Foucault and the Iranian and and the seductions of Islamism, uh, that uh, the reason Foucault was attracted to this revolution uh, was uh, primarily because Foucault advocated uh, a critique of modernity based on pre-modern relations of power, and Iranian revolution was also a pre-modern form of revolutionary movement, and uh, that was the foundation of the convergence of this Foucauldian theory and the Iranian revolution. So uh, here I offer a totally different kind of uh, reading of uh, Foucault's uh, writing on the Iranian revolution, and I wanted to highlight the fact that neither the revolution was an anti-modern or pre-modern revolution, nor is Foucault's argument a pre-modern critique of modern relations of power. And at the end of the book, I want to show that how this revolution left a significant mark on uh, Foucault's uh, writings and, and uh, thinking uh, towards the end of his life from uh, 1980 to 1984. Now, one of the main aspects of this argument is what you do in the first chapter, which is offer a chronology, a narrative of how the revolution unfolded. Uh, because, uh, you know, one of the main aspects of your book is the question of the moment of the revolution rather than its aftermath, the, how this was experienced. Right. A reader really gets a very palpable sense of the experience of the revolution. So could you give us a sense of, you know, what were some of the key moments, perhaps a, a few key moments that you focus on in that chapter uh, that is central to the kind of chronology that you developed in terms of how the revolution unfolded? 
Uh -huh. uh, I think the key moment, uh, uh, the, the, I, I need to highlight that moment uh, in the sort of the development of uh, Shi'i political philosophy that Khomeini puts forward in the um, late uh, 1960s uh, that was very much influenced by anti-colonial struggles and, uh, and, uh, and Khomeini was the one who... Uh, tried to rescue that kind of political quietism from uh, Shi'i uh, uh, circles and seminaries uh, and, uh, and uh, advance a different kind of political engagement uh, and put that responsibility on the shoulders of, of clerics. So it's, uh, again, uh, I, I wanted to mention that because often when people talk about the Iranian uh, revolution and talk about political Islam, uh, political Islam appears as if this was a return to a past, while there is really not a past in Shi'i political philosophy in which uh, the clerics are encouraged to participate in a social upheaval. And uh, and this was sort of Khomeini's um, uh, 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 new political theory that, that encouraged that kind of engagement. And, and for the most part, Khomeini remained... Uh, very marginal in the in uh, in the seminaries in Iran all the way till the time of revolution. So that we have that kind of political ideological context is which is advanced by Khomeini, and then um, in 1976 and 1977 uh, we have a series of events that happens uh, by uh, uh, after Jimmy Carter comes to uh, uh, power in, in the U.S., he's elected as U.S. president, and he pushes uh, the regime of Shah uh, for more political liberalism and the release of political prisoners in Iran. And, uh, and the hope was that since Iran was doing uh, rather uh, fine economically and they, they were not doing the dealing with a huge economic crisis, and that kind of economic security gave the impression that that the time was ripe for for offering more political freedom. So, with the release of political prisoners uh, in 1977 and a rather um, a better or more freer press in Iran, we see more and more reflection of uh, of Khomeini's writings in the press. We see uh, major events by by Iranian poets and writers that happens in 1977, and uh, and these events became very sort of, of uh, instrumental in creating that space in which uh, the most uh, organized uh, um, place in Iran, which was the mosques, could uh, um, could uh, put together a series of events and mobilize people. Uh, and uh, and perhaps the uh, the most important of all those events were in the summer of 1978 that uh, for for the Eid al-Fitr uh, that there is uh, for the first time in the streets of Tehran there is a, a march of uh, more than one million people. Uh, this is a place that you know uh, these kind of marches had not had happened for more than 25 years, and uh, and I think you know if one wants to mark the beginning of the revolutionary mo mo moment, uh, summer of 1978 uh, 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 and uh, the march and for Eid al-Fitr was the most important one, and then a few days later, uh, on uh, in September of uh, 
1978, uh, martial law was decreed in Tehran, and what is known in the Iranian historiography as the Black Friday, uh, the army uh, stepped onto the streets and, and uh, opened fire to a cro- crowd of unarmed uh, people and massacred uh, anywhere between uh, 70 people to 200 people. And the, uh, uh, the rumor was that more than 4,000 people were killed. And, uh, and I think at that moment, you know, the, the Shah's regime lost its uh, whatever legitimacy it enjoyed. And, uh, and it became very clear that the revolution, revolutionary movement was on an uh, unreturnable path. And, uh, and uh, curiously enough, this is exactly the time that uh, Foucault arrives in Iran, only uh, a couple of days after the massacre of Black Friday. And this is the moment that Foucault arrives in Iran, and, and, uh, and, uh, and the way he described that moment is uh, quite uh, illuminating, because he says that, you know, he uh, arrived, this is his first writing on the Iranian revolution, that he says that, I thought that I enter a city uh, taken by fear, but uh, the only thing I I saw was uh, the absolute absence of fear, and um, and uh, and uh, and then he continues that he says that you know in in France we always talk about the general will of the people, and the general will in political philosophy in French political philosophy was always like God. We never knew uh, is there such thing as general will, and uh, and he writes to his friends in in Paris. That you know, I, I I'm going to tell you that for the first time in my life, I witnessed uh, a general will of a people on the streets of Tehran. I saw God on the streets of Tehran. So he was very much taken aback by by this kind of overwhelming presence of uh, of the masses on the streets of Tehran. So let's continue with that thought of uh, yeah. what uh, uh, Foucault made of the Iranian Revolution as it was unfolding. And, you know, two categories that really are central uh, to your analysis on Foucault is this idea of uh, political spirituality and then this idea of the collective will. Um, so could you say a bit more about what uh, is this idea of political spirituality in Foucault's thought and why is it so central in relation to how he mm-hmm. viewed and how he approached uh, the Iranian revolution? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, uh, for, for Foucault, uh, the important thing really in he, all his writings was not concerned about the outcome of, of the revolution. He was very much concerned with the question of how revolution is experienced, how revolution is lived, and how people participate in this seemingly totally inexplicable phenomena, because he... Uh, in, in a number of places, he, uh, he had this uh, assertion that, uh, that a man in revolt is ultimately inexplicable. And, uh, and for the most part, I mean, I, I say this also from my own personal experiences here, um, that, uh, that uh, it was truly un- inexplicable that how people could just um, stand in front of uh, tanks and armored vehicles and, and machine guns uh, without fear. And uh, there was something very strange was happening. That, that, that strange thing Foucault uh, conceptualized as, uh, as political spirituality. And in a sense, he thought that political spirituality, here uh, I have to emphasize that when he talks about political spirituality, it's not a reference to the religious character of the revolution. Uh, here he wanted to highlight that, that something happens that massive numbers of people um, 
find the ability to transform themselves to become someone that they could never imagine they have they had the ability to become and uh, so in that sense he said that on the one hand this kind of space uh, this one can imagine this sort of a mystical space that uh, people go through this transformative action without knowing any idea about well, what is the end result of that of course the end result of that for many people was death because they were facing uh, uh, soldiers on the streets um, and that created a sense of ambiguity in the in the revolutionary movement that that that, that ambiguity for Foucault was a source of uh, creativity, was a source of creative engagement with this revolutionary movement. And, uh, and, uh, and again, for, for him, it was uh, a quite an uh, unprecedented event because um, in all other revolutionary movements that, that people have written about or social protests that the one has seen around the world, he had seen and engaged in uh, in different moments in his life. There was always a very particular defined um, platform around which people um, um, mobilized, uh, were mobilized. Uh, here, everything was ambiguous. People talked about the... Uh, uh, the, the the fact that they they wanted an Islamic government uh, without anybody knowing what exactly does that mean, and uh, and from people on the streets to people in 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 uh, in the Shi'i seminaries uh, to whom uh, Foucault talked, uh, nobody knew exactly what this Islamic government is, but they have this sort of a general sense of justice, a general sense of. Uh, um, uh, liberty, uh, without giving that sense a very particular uh, sort of blueprint uh, based upon which people could establish a certain kind of governmentality. So Foucault thought that this sort of moment of this transformative moment, uh, which was very much associated with a very high degree of ambiguity, there, there was a lot of unknown involved in this. He conceptualized that as political spirituality. And, um, and uh, of course, you know, this concept was totally misunderstood uh, by his critics because his critics, of, of course, if you imagine uh, the intellectual scene uh, uh, circles uh, in, in, in Paris, uh, the, the the home of uh, laicite, the home of a very radical sense of uh, secularism that suddenly, you know, this uh, um, uh, philosopher, this French philosopher is talking about the spirituality and, and endorsing a revolutionary movement which is uh, uh, characterized by a religious political philosophy. And uh, he was ridiculed for it. He was uh, he was called to come and, and uh, uh, be... Um, accountable for, for things he had said, and so on and so forth. So, so in that sense, I think that was a, 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 the, the core of his argument, that, that, uh, that, uh, that he wanted to shift the, the weight of the revolution from the focus on the platform and the outcome to the, the realities of lived experiences of the revolutionary movement. So let's talk a bit, Behrouz, about some of the misreadings uh, that you, uh, misinterpretations of uh, Foucault and also Khomeini that you talked about uh, in, in the next chapter. Um, mm -hmm. Could you highlight perhaps some of the major and perhaps some of the most 
sort of egregious misreadings that you analyze yeah. in relation to uh, I will, you talk about Shariati and uh, Khomeini and uh, Foucault, but perhaps could we focus on um, uh, Foucault and Khomeini and how uh, their thought and their uh, you know political activism um, and philosophical reflections were misread by uh, scho- mm-hmm. scholars in the U.S. Uh, could you say right, that right. here? Um, uh, you know, one of the major misreadings of the revolution and, and uh, was that uh, when people talk about that the fact that the revolution, the, the, there were different factions in revolution, the revolutionary movements, and uh, there were secular forces and there were religious forces. Uh, when I went back and I read, uh, uh, I covered a whole bunch of different documents from the time, from different political parties, from Iranian communist groups, from Iranian nationalist groups, you actually never see any conversation about secularism at that time. It is true that there were different uh, groups involved in the revolutionary movement, but this language of secularism was not spoken at all. Uh, and the language that uh, was spoken during the revolutionary time was a uh, struggle against imperialism, anti-colonialism, and everyone thought that uh, any uh, political group, regardless of their ideologies, are part of this movement. And uh, and I think you know, this is a very kind of Whiggish uh, writing of the Iranian, uh, the history of Iranian revolution, to say that there were different secular and religious factions, while at the, at the time, uh, none of these groups identified as such, you know, that, 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 that they're promoting a secular um, uh, revolution or secular post-revolutionary regime. Of course, you know, again, the power struggle after the revolution is a totally different story. I I wanted to focus on pre-revolutionary revolutionary movement here. And also, uh, even the secular or communist groups, I argue there, there was a uh, language through which all these different groups spoke um, about their political agenda, about their ideology, which uh, really uh, collapsed these boundaries between religious and secular. I I had this uh, one example of very famous uh, Iranian uh, uh, journalist and poet, uh, Khosrow Gulesurhi, who in his uh, trial, uh, the very first line of his his defense was that, that he learned socialism from Imam Ali. And when Imam Hussein did, uh, uh, was martyred, it was exactly the same way that all the anti-colonial people today are being martyred in their struggle for justice. So this is a person who is uh, very openly Marxist, and he says that you know, there is no difference between when Marx talks about accumulation of capital on one side and exploitation of proletariat on the other side, uh, with what Imam Ali says, that you can't build a mansion without destroying um, home of um, the dispossessed. Um, so in that sense, I wanted to argue that under those kind of discursive engagement, under those kinds of uh, convergence of political ideologies, it was basically impossible to draw these boundaries between secular and religious at the time in 1976, 77, 78, and 79 it's only after the revolution in post-revolutionary struggle that these lines become evident. 
So, um, so that's that's one line that that I wanted to uh, highlight to say that everyone reads this in a very whiggish way. In in in, in retrospect, they argue that these uh, the differences existed uh, at the time. <clears throat> And uh, and I also wanted to say that you know even Khomeini uh, was also you know the, it wasn't only the left in Iran which was very much uh, influenced by so, so this liberation theology of Shi'i political philosophy. It was also the Shi'i philosophy political philosophy was very much influenced by. Uh, ideas of anti-colonial, Fanonian ideas of anti-colonial violence and, and uh, political struggle and so on and so forth. So this this space was very exceptional in the Iranian uh, uh, revolutionary movement. And I think it, it it's very important to recognize that rather than reading back to the revolutionary movement, the, the uh, divisions that emerged uh, after the revolution. And you also, yes. of course, make uh, the, the point that oftentimes, you know, Foucault is critiqued and uh, attacked uh, uh, with the argument that he has supported, uh, you know, a revolution which led to all kinds of violence and oppression, right, of, right, op- right. oppression of yeah. women and minorities and so on. And you make the point that, mm. you know, that kind of a reading is problematic because the outcome, as you mentioned earlier, was mm. not at the center of his thought, but rather the process. Uh, could you say a bit more about that? that yeah, yeah. Uh, this, this no, that, that, yeah, yeah, that's very much true because... Yeah. Uh, Again, you know, this is a totally a misreading of Foucault to say that, or, or rather to hold Foucault accountable for what emerged after the revolution and the emergence of reign of terror and, uh, and the execution of uh, opposition, the suppression of women, and so on and so forth. Um, and I argue there that, you know, Foucault wrote only one letter after the revolution to the Iranian uh, uh, the provisional government, and uh, I really like that letter because the first two lines uh, is that, you know, he says that, dear Mr. Prime Minister, I'm sure I'll be the last person at this moment after your amazing revolution that you, you want to hear an advice about how to run your country. Uh, but then he goes on to, to talk about, you know, uh, respect for the rights of others and so on and so forth. So I think, you know, that's, that's really, I mean, and Foucault wanted to distance himself from the outcome of revolution or not be engaged in that conversation because he thought that uh, that was really not the point of his writings to begin with. I mean, he didn't feel like he was accountable for what was happening after the revolution. Uh, and uh, even when uh, the, in, on the front pages of Le Monde, uh, the editorial uh, column, they asked Foucault to come and explain uh, uh, his position and and uh, and uh, basically recant and apologize and and Foucault said that he's going to write this uh, only on the condition that he would write it anonymously and he wrote this really wonderful piece uh, and he signed anonymous philosopher mm-hmm. and uh, and he said that you know the, the time of this kind of inquisition is over and you need to be able to develop a critique without. Um, uh, uh, founding that critique uh, on 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 a uh, on a very visible and extreme sense of hatred, and uh, and uh, so so he was very much aware of what was happening in Iran, and he didn't want to engage with that argument because he thought that that you know it, it basically takes away from the significance of what he was proposing in the post pre revolutionary struggle, and um, and uh, therefore. And he also thought that, you know, this was 
uh, not his responsibility to, to give advice to the Iranian government uh, to a new revolutionary regime to, to how to run their own country. So he stayed away from that argument. Now, another aspect that you talk about uh, quite extensively is the question of gender and the question of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, women's rights and oppression and feminist right. politics and so on. And earlier you mentioned, you know, that your book questions this binary between the Islamist and the secularist and show you show mm-hmm. that things were a lot more muddled than that kind of a binary. You also question this binary between, um, you know, uh, sort of... Uh, feminists in Iran opposing Khomeini and then this regime that was all brutal and oppressive towards women. You also question that kind of a binary between emancipation and oppression in relation yes. to, in relation to how, uh, uh, you know, re- the revolution and its, uh, and its supporters were uh, That's right. depicted. Yes. Could you say a bit That's... more about that argument? Uh, that yeah, argument? I mean, there, there are two different arguments. One is, uh, you know, the, uh, in the book I talk about this important day, the first uh, inter- international uh, Women's Day, March 8, uh, 1979, that there is uh, massive rallies in Tehran. Uh, and this is the time that uh, Khomeini tries to assert his authority uh, to say that, you know, to, to they're basically testing the water to see if they could implement and institute a mandatory compulsory hijab in Iran. And, uh, and th- this rally happens in Tehran against the mandatory hijab. Uh, and... Um, and uh, but this is sort of an interesting moment because then there are a lot, many, a number of large con- uh, contingent of, of uh, uh, American, Canadian, French, Italian feminists who go to Iran and and they wanted to defend and 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 work on behalf of Iranian women uh, against compulsory hijab, and uh, and I try to draw out that kind of contradiction there that that uh, that they enter a very revolutionary society. And uh, which is uh, trying to make sense of the situation at a very confusing moment where uh, politics of anti-imperialist politics, class politics, identity politics, uh, secular religious politics is emerging. And um, uh, but all that engagement was based on an assumption that from the very textual reading of of Islamic uh, uh, ordinances on the position of women and gender relations. And I also, in the book, I wanted to say that the problem was that kind of textual reading really didn't pan out as they imagined, because it is true that on the, what, on the one hand, uh, uh, many of the patriarchal and, uh, and, and, and at uh, some points uh, misogynistic kind of laws were uh, uh, implemented in, in Iran, but there was a very uh, significant unintended consequence of these laws that that we see in the last 30 years or so, um, uh, the level of in women's engagement in public sphere, the level of women's engagement in, uh, in intellectual production, women's engagement in education, 60% of higher education students in Iran are women. And these things were also part of that package of implementing Islamic uh, laws in the country. And, and of course, I acknowledge that these are sort of unintended consequences. I don't think those laws were instituted uh, in order to make that kind of mobilization happen in society. But, but uh, nevertheless, in reality, these were the consequences of these laws because it generated a, a space for engagement of uh, uh, large um, 
majority of Iranian women who were excluded before revolution from any kind of social participation. And now the, the, the space was there for them to be engaged in different forms of uh, uh, civil society uh, activities. So, um, so there are, I think, you know, both, you know, in terms of uh, <clears throat> implementation of new laws and the consequences of these laws in Iran, again, we see that kind of sort of binary understanding of, of uh, patriarchal and, and uh, oppressive gender policies becomes very problematic if we actually study how things uh, unfold on the ground. Now, before I uh, ask uh, the last uh, substantive question, uh, Behruz, I just want to point out for our listeners that this book has some very interesting and arresting images also uh, that you have, uh, some dramatic images of the massacre of Black Friday. Uh, you have the image of the trial of uh, Khosrow uh, Golesorhi. This is on page yes. 79. And we also have this fantastic image of the day that uh, Foucault landed uh, in Tehran, right. it, it seems like the airport, right? It seems like the Tehran right, airport. Right. It's Tehran uh, airport yes. on page fifty-two. So I would, I would urge the listeners to take a look at these images. Also, the question I wanted to ask you, Emiruz, is: So, how did this experience of uh, witnessing uh, the Iranian Revolution? How did this inform and impress uh, Foucault's thought? Uh, what do you see are some of the major uh, uh, ways in which uh, this experience uh, informed uh, his conceptualization of? questions of politics, religion, and so on. Right, right, right. I mean, in uh, in uh, Foucault's scholarship, uh, people who write about Foucault's oeuvre, uh, they always talk about a major transformation that happens in Foucault's writing uh, after uh, 1980, uh, 79 AD, basically by, uh, after the publication of second volume of History of Sexuality and second and third volumes of History of Sexuality. And people argue that Foucault suddenly... Uh, a philosopher who was accused of writing subjectless history, somebody who didn't have any interest in um, in the, uh, what Foucault himself called hermeneutics of the subject, suddenly becomes all concerned and interested in in the question of the subject and and uh, and issues like ethics and uh, and uh, this series of lectures that he gave on Parasia, uh, meaning, you know, speaking truth uh, 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 with dare and, and, uh, and, uh, and without consideration. Uh, and uh, although everybody talks about this major transformation about uh, Foucault on Foucault's thought and uh, in his writing, uh, that why he becomes so interested in uh, subjects who are making history, no one, it seems uh, like, um, uh, that uh, have uh, made the connection that these major transformations exa- happens exactly after uh, his writings on the Iranian Revolution, and, and here I want, I in the book I wanted to make sure that that that's the other part of my argument there, that that, that uh, put some weight on that to to say that uh, this major because after all what uh, Foucault talks about ethics he says that for example ethics is uh, uh, the ability to become someone that somebody. Uh, w- could never imagine that person could have become. And I said, well, that's exactly the way he described the uh, political spirituality in the Iranian revolution. And there are a lot of instances that I put the passages from his writings on the Iranian revolution next to his later lectures in Collège de France uh, on um, hermeneutics of the subject. And I show uh, a lot of inspiration that that happens in, in his uh, encounter uh, with the Iranian revolution and, and its reflection in his later writing. 
So the book is Foucault in Iran, Islamic Revolution after the Enlightenment by Behrouz Ghamarit Tabrizi. Um, thank you so much, Behrouz, for this wonderful book and for your time today. I'm sure our listeners uh, would really benefit uh, from reading this book and I hope also they enjoyed this conversation. So thank you very much for your time. Thank, thank you, you so much for having me. So this was my conversation on Foucault in Iran. I hope you enjoyed this episode of New Books in Islamic Studies and that you will also join us next time for another fresh episode. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to new books in Islamic studies.